Hello, Acquired LPs, and welcome to uh, another episode of the LP Show. David in his San Francisco home and me up in uh, in Seattle. Today's episode is one that has been uh, requested a few times in the Slack and a topic of great discussion. When you dive deeper into these company building topics and stop talking about just the you know, sort of news of the day of who got funded or what company is going through trouble or, you know, the day-to-day of running a company, one of the most important things is how do you choose who to bring into your company and what process do you put them through to to see if they're the right person? And we have never discussed interviewing on the LP show. As David and I were talking about how should we do an LP episode on uh, interviewing, I was telling David about the story of this awesome entrepreneur in residence, Anna Collins, who'd been working with us at PSL, and she hopped on this interview loop to help us out, just had, in, in our post-interview discussion, the most thoughtful feedback, the, the best questions. All of us were joking and looking at each other and saying, why did any of us even do this interview loop, and can Anna just do the whole thing for us? So here we are today to do an LP episode on the uh, the very first time on how to conduct the best interview you can, a key part of building a high-performance team with the best person I can imagine to, to help us do it. So Anna, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. To give folks a sense of Anna's background, I mentioned I personally know her because she's been working on new startup ideas with us. But before that, Anna has a prolific career. She is a fantastic leader and human, uh, having started and scaled new businesses at multi-billion dollar companies in healthcare, edtech, advertising, gaming, CPG, retail, um, and of course, technology businesses. She was the worldwide general manager of Amazon Prime. Before that, she was recruited by Microsoft to build out and scale the global search advertising business from concept all the way through growth and ultimately to $1.6 billion uh, in revenue. At CVS Health, uh, she was responsible for leading the internet channel strategy and the acquisition culminating in the launch of CVS.com. She holds an AB in economics and an MBA from Harvard University. While not changing the world, Anna coaches her sons Henry and Cooper in basketball and keeps up with her wonderful wife, Debbie. A quote that closes out Anna's bio reads, family first, love wins. And Anna, I just wanted to include that because I saw it uh, I saw it on a bio of yours somewhere and, and thought it'd be a great way to close that out. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. You have such a prolific background. Why don't we dive into some of the early history of that before we get to these sort of nitty gritty of tactical interviewing questions. One of your earliest uh, experiences as a three-sport athlete uh, was on the Harvard basketball team. I just I wanted you to share with us, because I know a little bit of the story, what that was like for you and, and why that was a special time in your life. Yeah, it was a special time because when I went to Harvard as a freshman and joined, we were last place in the Ivy League. The first year, we won three games and, and lost 21. And so we were losing basically all the time. And we weren't just losing, we were getting crushed by other teams, 20 points, 50 points. And it was the first year of a new coach uh, that came, Kathy Delaney Smith. She had a vision of winning, and that was part of why I wanted to, to be on that team and turning the program around. And we went from worst to first in four years. So in my senior year, we won the Ivy League and had reversed the freshman year record, and we were 21-3. and three. And it was the first time Harvard basketball ever won an Ivy League championship, men or women's. And that was a big journey going from worst to first and a lot of heartache and sorrow um, and a lot of learning and how to experiment and be a team together. And during that journey in basketball, I had a practice that if we did not win a game, I did not look at my individual stats. 
And that's because it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter how many rebounds or how many points. If we didn't win the game, it didn't matter. So I had a, a practice of only looking at my stats if we won the game. That gives you sort of the notion of how I feel about team versus individual and what matters. Well, speaking of team versus individual, I know you uh, you were in the Air Force. I'm curious to hear a little bit about your path of being in the Air Force and how that ended up leading you into the world of technology. I can share a little bit about the Air Force. The basketball had more to do with the the lead into technology with our friend Mike Galgon. The Air Force, yeah, I, I had the opportunity. I was picked to, to go to an engineering and science seminar at the Naval Academy. I got exposure to the opportunity of the service academies as well as then the ROTC Reserve Officer Training Corps programs and scholarships. And so uh, I had a choice when I was graduating. I had both scholarships and appointments to the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy. And you can take those scholarships anywhere. I also had other options with academic and athletic uh, scholarships, so super fortunate. But I wanted the experience of serving. Serving mattered to me. Uh, growing up in Michigan, had that service component and value as a family. And then second, the opportunity to lead, to manage people and be responsible for resources and people at an early age. Really at 21, you're thrown in as an officer and you get that opportunity. And and I knew that I wanted that. So those components altogether had me really go after the uh, ROTC scholarship. And I did that at MIT, cross-enrolled at MIT as I went to Harvard. At some point, you made this sort of choice, hey, I'm going to go into the world of business. I, I don't think the the Air Force has been this amazing experience, but that isn't my career. In college, I studied economics, and that was the closest thing to business at Harvard. And I thought, hey, I'm going to go to business school or law school. I'm not sure. With the Air Force, I didn't know how long I would stay. But as I was in the Air Force, I figured out I was gay in my early to mid-20s. And that was when it was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It's just you're a criminal if you're gay. And so I was in finance. That, that's where the Air Force matched me to as a career, which ended up being a good career for me and, and background. So I wanted to get out when I figured that out after my four years of active service. And I had an active time in that reserve that I owed. But I didn't feel comfortable staying in. For me, it was integrity to not be my full self. And so I was just scared. And I got out after that first four years. Otherwise, I may have stayed in a little bit longer and potentially have gone to graduate school and then served again, longer in the service. But for me, it was urgent urgency to get out based on being a criminal. Wow. Well, I want to zoom forward a little bit through the early business experience you had at uh, Johnson & Johnson and then launching CVS.com in the late 90s uh, to where you decided to join Mike Galgon at Aquaniv. And that was a heck of a journey. I mean, Aquaniv you know, especially in those sort of late 90s and early 2000s. For folks that don't know, this is a company, it was one of the very earliest pioneers in the internet advertising space. Uh, it IPO'd and then sold to Microsoft as a multi-billion dollar acquisition. And, and boy, is there a story in there that we'll dive into uh, on this show at some point. But Anna, I want to zoom in on sort of the leadership component. W what did you learn being an executive during that time period and, and how fast things were moving? It was the quintessential chaos, and it was pre-IPO when I joined in August 99. One thing is being flexible and adaptable. So even in the role, I interviewed and was recruited as VP of business development. But the week before I joined, Mike, who was acting president at the time, said, hey, we really need a leader for this media group that has 30 plus individuals in it. And 
a manager to help figure out how to scale that portion of the business because we're growing like crazy and it's it's not working basically. And would you instead come into that operating role and be VP of media as this, as your starting position? This is a week before I started. And I said, sure, that'd be great because I preferred an operating role. And I know we're moving quickly through your background here, but we, you've just done so much. And I think it's really relevant context for you know, our discussion on interviewing. So speaking of customer focused, uh, you also, uh, you spent some time at Amazon and you you were the worldwide general manager of Amazon Prime. And Amazon is sort of famous for their, not only interview process, but the, what do they call them? The principles, the 18? Leadership principles, yeah, 14. Leadership principles. 14 leadership principles. 14. Yeah, yeah. And to, again, to be clear, I was one of the leaders in Amazon Prime and I was uh, the global leader for Amazon Prime membership which did include retention, engagement, uh, the first two prime days, prime member spent, pricing. And so, yes, that's super fun to do. And again, a lot, a big team of people had to be thankful and grateful uh, again for that experience. Amazon was a tremendous place to, and is a tremendous company and learned a lot and got the opportunity to work with a lot of amazing people there. You skipped over the Microsoft portion, which I spent about seven years at Microsoft, which is, which again, I hired uh, I'll just skip back to Microsoft in building out that search ad business from scratch. I hired with my team of people over 500 people across the globe in 18 months and created brand new roles to to do that. And so again, that was that was actually the most phenomenal uh, hiring practice that that I that I've ever done again across in, in both in in scale and in speed. And I could talk about that, but going back to Amazon, Amazon's leadership principles and how they operate. Amazon is like a mashup of Harvard Business School and the military because of how standardized they uh, operate and with a great adherence to process and the way things are done. And so that's one of the reasons that then this applies across the business, whether it's creating a new business, working backward, doing the working backwards process with a with a customer press release and frequently asked questions or ERFAQ, or it's the hiring process and what that process is and how it's done and what the components are and how the preparation is for that, starting with the job description, what are the appropriate seven, the most important seven leadership principles, for example, for that particular role, perhaps, and who should be on a, a loop? How do you do the pre-brief before the loop? How do you assign roles? And what you're basically doing is you're giving everyone a different, probably two leadership principles to interview by. And then everybody, you're, you're, you're basically getting a, a portion, everyone's doing a portion of the interview uh, data collection. And so you get a full picture of the person. This is exactly the same process, by the way, that we did at Microsoft. So it was not different at Amazon than Microsoft. Amazon has just done a better job of branding it. <laughs> yeah, potentially as far as the communication on that. But I think also in the way that it's practiced. In other words, there might be more variation of how, I want to say religiously, but how well the process is followed in different, say, divisions or groups at Microsoft. Again, it's, it's changed since I've been there, but it may have changed since I've been there, but during the period I was there. But Microsoft has their... There are seven values at the time, 33 competencies, you know, it's a similar thing. And, and we did the same. So how I interviewed at Amazon was not different from how I did it at Microsoft with my teams, as an example. It was a different, we used different values slash leadership principles, but the the actual method was was the same. 
there's a bar raiser, a bar raiser for at Amazon, which is the uh, person or the role on the loop that is there to assess the to do two things. One is assess the long-term potential of that candidate. So are they a good fit for Amazon or the company? Do they match those values? And do they have the potential to grow? Uh, if you're hiring in at you know X level, can they can they grow two or three levels beyond that? So are they good long-term fit? And number two, are they are they just a good cultural fit for, for the company? Because the hiring manager always has the immediate pressure of needing to fill that role to get the, the job done, the business done. And so this, this bar raiser role is this long-term potential. And then also calibration. Is this person at that level, if you're hiring in as a, for example, a frontline manager, do they have the right experience and competency and capability that would and proficiency to operate at that level? So you're calibrating uh, for that level. Microsoft has an, a role called an as appropriate. It's the same role. In other words, I was an as appropriate. Yeah, the as app. As app, yeah, exactly. But th- that would be an example of, you know, how that practice, those practices are really the same, but the adherence of, and standardization of those is, is greater at, at Amazon. And the, with the as appropriate, my understanding of the w- place where that term comes from is they're the last person on the loop and they only join as appropriate if the rest of the, the group is sort of trending up and they need that one person to come in and, and sort of weigh in. Was that your experience? And then also in the bar raiser, is that sort of the same way that the bar raiser would be like the last person on the loop? So two things. One, at Microsoft, again, this is where we always had it. We had loops and the experience, because you're you're going to construct the loop and say, you know, you want to do it to make it convenient and fast uh, for the candidate as well as the company. And so to the degree possible, you would have them all stacked together. So you start at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And based on schedules, it's too complex to say, you know, the as appropriate is at the end. Yes, or the bar raisers at the end. If you could do that, that's great. It doesn't have to be that way, though. And again, with scheduling, it's it's virtually impossible to always do that. So What's more important is that, that that role is on there. Second, you don't get to know the other person's feedback until after you've done your feedback as an interviewer. And so it's about, at Microsoft, you could see the other uh, interview feedback as an as appropriate and then be able to use that to probe on concerns. And so that would be one of the things that as an as appropriate, as the rest of the loop happened, you could, you could not only have whatever you were planning to your assigned values or comp or leadership principles in the, in the Amazon world, but you could also have other concerns that you want to probe on that have come up through the loop to date. And so that that's the other piece of it. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search guidance or market outlook. 
Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mentioned based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter you said you know amazon being kind of a cross of harvard business school and the military how did you think about creating such a process driven culture which you have to do when you're hiring thousands and thousands of people you need a standardized process with the Making hiring decisions is, you know, these are human decisions. It's not like there's a right answer. What was the appropriate balance of like a rigid process or a rigorous process and still having room for like understanding that human element? A couple of things. One is having process. It's it's kind of like uh, when you, if you ask someone uh, about boundaries and creativity, you know, you actually need structure for creativity. So Basketball is played in a court that is 90 feet long. A free throw is 15 feet. It has a lot of rules and structure to it. But yet you could have uh, Steph Curry or LeBron James or Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, different styles of basketball within that structure. So I believe, and music, same thing. You have the staff, the same notes, different, uh, you know, four, four time and you have Mozart to Madonna to Lady Gaga. So I believe that structure is what is required for creativity and for humans to uh, actually connect. And and if you have chaos, that's the opposite of being able to have an ability to connect and a good candidate experience. So it's all about being human, you're right, and you need the structure to help facilitate that and to make it productive because if you have no if you don't have this kind of structure and rules it's on like, a, oh let's just go out to lunch together and like right then you you don't know you know, at the end of it you don't know so it's, it's similar actually to to PSL's uh, structure for assessing a business idea you have a way to do voice of customer interviews if everyone just oh let's just go talk to a bunch of customers but you don't know what kind of data you're looking for you don't have a hypothesis then you you could ha- you could conduct 10 customer voice of customer interviews and have nothing at the end. Yeah, and I've certainly made that mistake, especially earlier in my career, of trying to do interviews without a clear plan. And then I ended up spending an hour of both of our time and have no data at the end. I think that's a, you know, that's very common for people early in their career. 
the the other thing is it leads to a bunch of subjective bias when you're just saying, oh, do, you know, is this person? Because again, we all have these biases around. You no, know, do do they like things I like? Are they interesting? Are they engaging? Someone might be introverted versus extroverted. You start judging based on style and other factors than like what are the capabilities? And so, in you know, the interview is about assessing fit, fit for role, fit for the company, fit for the potential to to grow fit for that level, right? And so you're assessing fit. What are the skills, functional knowledge, experience, capability, competencies? And those competencies include the uh, EQ stuff uh, and the business judgment. Like write a lot is a leadership principle at Amazon that is about judgment. Are you write a lot when you, and judgment is both, you know, quantitative and qualitative, getting back to the subjective. So how do you assess someone's judgment and that's important whether they're a frontline first level developer or they're a you know director uh, leading a, a big business. So what I think is important about that that structure is is part of that also is reminding people that this is a two way the candidate experience too. So you're they're assessing that is this role is this company is this opportunity right for me? And so again, you want to show up with the right game and intention and organization so that they get their answers question their questions answered as well. I love that analogy of like the process is like the basketball court. Like you need with no basketball court and no rules, like it's impossible to have creativity and greatness. But you can still have creativity and greatness within the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And being authentic to your point, you know, to me that that actually showing up and and having a plan and then being able to connect with the person while you're at while you're engaging in a dialogue around their experience and you're in and you're also sharing about what the opportunity and the role in the company is like is is important. Well, Anna, there's so much more we could touch on in your background, including the fact that you were the president and COO of Bulletproof, which I'm I'm sure lots of people uh, are familiar with, disruptive sort of consumer health and and wellness brand. Let's weave that into into the the meat of the episode here. So talking about the interview itself, whatever is most useful for you, whether you want to talk about it, like Anna Collins is starting a startup right now and how you would do this, or if you were at a bigger company, how you would do this. I want to talk about like, you're about to hire some people and you need to figure out how to do that. What do you do first? What's your playbook? How should, how should listeners think about this? I guess a couple of things. One is, you know, we started to talk about it with the leadership principles and competency. So the so the first thing is it's, you know, the interviewing or bringing people onto the bus is the is one part of the people process. So there's like what people are on the bus, how do you bring the uh, new people onto the bus, what seat on the bus, how do you develop people and move them from one seat to the next seat on the bus? And then when is it time for someone to leave the bus, get off the bus? All of that that larger people process is rooted and grounded in, like the basketball court and rules for the basketball game, there are uh, structure and guidelines for the people process. And for me, those start with the vision, mission, and values of the company. Uh, so for example, at Bulletproof, when I, when I got there, again, Dave, the founder and CEO, had done a phenomenal job of, of growing the business to a very large business at the time I joined, but it was still very bootstrapped and chaotic uh, from how it was operating. And so when I asked 10 people, well, you know, what's the vision, 
what's the mission, what are the values, you'd get different answers. And there were some essence things of it that showed up, like it was disruptive, like it was a bleeding edge, innovative kind of brand. And it's a better for you, right? A brand that is about nutrition and it it provides content and products to, to help people be healthier. But how that was being communicated to both customers and employees was was different and it wasn't, again, clear. And so one of the things I did was in the first 90 days was start a process to define the vision, mission, and values with the employee input, customer input, feedback, and then ran a process with with, uh, Dave and the leadership team to define the vision, mission, values. And so it's clear the mission of Bulletproof is to create products and provide information that radically improve lives. And everybody can say that and know that. And values like gratitude and innovation and uh, customer focus, for example, are critical. And so you say, okay, here are the values, here are the vision, mission, and then bake those into an interview process that says, okay, now we're going to interview for these things. We're going to interview. And those are critical in addition to skills and functional knowledge for whatever role it is. Those are uh, critical things to weave in, just like for Amazon, they are with defined leadership principles. Those same vision, mission values get woven into the uh, people processes for developing and assessing employees as well. With that, the skills and functional knowledge are really being assessed when the candidate in the front end part of the uh, selection process for candidates. And so by the time before, well, I should say phone interviews and the initial interviews by the hiring manager and the recruiter is, and looking at. So you're really in your testing and the, the, the actual, I'll say, final loop is, is about, I'd say, confirming those skills and functional knowledge and then assessing overall as part of that overall final assessment on that, as well as the experience and and capability and competencies in full. But you have a good, you know, you're 80% sure the person has the skills and functional knowledge by the time they walk in the door for the the full loop. And you're you're still pressing and uh, assessing for those, but your your front end of the process has already done a lot of both in and the interviews, those those pre-interviews done assessing for that, right? And now you're going for this, this deeper knowing about what their capability is and their proficiency level at the, of those things and their fit for operating within that company according to the to the values. Getting back to actually defining the role, it's important in when you're saying, oh gosh, what is this the job description of the role? And getting back to it doesn't need to be long, but it needs to be thoughtful in saying, what are the key capabilities and leadership principles that are important for this role? And not just for this role individually or standalone, but with the team. So when I'm hiring, for example, when I was at Microsoft and I was starting, I was the only person as I, I, I came in and they're like, right, create the business plan for the search advertising business. There was nothing. It was me in a room by myself. And as I, I created the plan, and I started figuring out what what are the different you know teams I'm going to need and what kind of leaders, and I needed to then I was going to have to recruit industry experience in because there was no search advertising experience in the company right except for me, and then I also needed Microsoft DNA in the team and the current display advertising business so I knew I needed a mix 
And so I start to say, okay, what do I need for experience, both in industry experience and the different levels of leaders and kinds of roles? And, uh, you know, one of the first people I recruited externally into the company was a former Avenue A Quant of a mentee of mine, Randy Wooten. And I hired him as uh, a senior director of this premium operations uh, service operations team to build out. And I was recruiting him back from an international assignment in London where he was running the Atlas business for Aquantiv. And what was important, I was picking him because I needed international experience that I didn't have at the time. And so that was something I wanted in that role as an example. So you're also looking at and saying, what do I need for experience that the team doesn't have, that I don't have, that's complementary, as well as the, the, if you will, the brass tacks of capability for that specific you know, functional knowledge. So you're looking at broader. And then you're also clear about what's what's critical, what's non-negotiable for that role, and what's what's not, because there is no unicorn. There are no unicorns. You know, you have to actually, uh, people are imperfect. We all are. And so you have to say, what am I willing to give up and trade off in a candidate or the, for this role? And you do that in the job description then. You have enough forethought when you're writing the JD to know what the critical ones are. That's right. And with that, you're, some of it's, you know, literally in the job description for the capabilities or experience. And some of it, again, is required. Some of it's preferred. That gets to like what's non-negotiable. And then as you're also learning, as you're seeing candidates and you're talking to people, you get usually uh, you also learn and get a clearer picture of like what's absolutely critical and also what kind of talent is in the marketplace that you that, that you know, you have available in a, in a time frame. I have yet to make a hire at, at PSL uh, where I didn't have to iterate the, the JD after meeting candidates. And I've always wondered, like, is this a failure on me as, as so, to define the role? Or is that actually just part of the process, particularly when you have very few roles per year, where, like, you need to understand what people are like to inform what the actual job description can be rather than sort of perfectly birthing the JD and then having that go out to the marketplace. Is that necessary to iterate? It depends, you know, especially in the uh, circumstance that you described. I think that that sounds like that makes sense. And you're only doing, but if you, if you go the other way and say, I needed to, we needed to build teams and we had a, a, you know, to launch the ad business in France, which is the first country we picked after Singapore to keep the sort of the wheels on. We had to have these capabilities across these different roles. And we had also more than one for it. So media specialists, search media specialists and search media analysts were two roles that we made up. We made you know, over 14 different roles for these teams, created new roles. We had to create them and then hire at scale. So, you know, 30, not one and do it in, you know, eight weeks. So we didn't have the luxury of saying, we're going to do what you did for the one or two that are very unique kinds of roles. So in some cases, you can do that. Or, so for example, at Bulletproof, when I went, I didn't have any CPG experience, consumer package goods experience. So I wanted for sure, when I was hiring my VP of supply chain, my VP of sales, my CFO, they had to have CPG experience, especially as we were going into retail distribution which again, I didn't have, I had a lot of uh, e-commerce uh, and retail, but I didn't have natural food, better for you products and, and retail, uh, mass retail distribution and mass in a mass way. So 
knowing what you don't have, just like I did at Microsoft, and in you know, there's a difference between is it only one of is there's only one VP of supply chain, or are there 30 media specialists or you know search analysts? I was thinking when you recruited Randy into your new business unit for for search ads at Microsoft, that was a case. I think a lot of startup, particularly founders, find themselves in this position where you know you have a need and you have a former colleague who you've worked with who you kind of like know would be perfect for it. Like, how did you think about that moment where? On the one hand, that's like so overwhelming. You've worked together before. You know it's like this person's great. You know they're going to be great. Let's get them in there. Like, get them working. How do you balance that with like, oh, well, maybe there might be somebody better out there. Should I run a you know broader process for this? Or like, Or is it better to really wait the like, I know this person is going to do great? There's no free pass. It wasn't like, oh, I thought of Randy and then he got the job. That wasn't what happened. Oh, and in fact, he had never worked for me directly in the Avenue A quadrant business. So I he wasn't on one of my teams. So I didn't wasn't intimate with his work, although I knew what he had accomplished and I saw him as a high performing individual and leader. And so that was clear to me. He had he had the experience that I wanted. I was picking him, I, I knew of him, but I was picking him more by what his results and accomplishments and reputation were than my direct. And I also looked at other people. He wasn't the only person. So it wasn't like I just said, okay, here's the only guy. I, he was the best guy in a field of people. And then I worked really hard to recruit him, which wasn't easy. But but he had said, hey, if you ever have something, I would love to work with you. So I said, hey, I'm playing that card. you know. And, and oh, by the way, he went through a, a rigorous process, like we're talking about, at Microsoft to get hired in at a senior level there. Uh, and of course, he did he did super well and uh, was was a, was a key leader in that team and continued to excel at Microsoft and beyond. This question of having worked with someone before is an interesting one because it's related to a thing that I rely really heavily on in in interviewing, which is references. I always find that what you can learn in an hour in an interview completely pales in comparison to a trusted reference. But I also know that that's dangerous because there's lots of circumstances, including bias, that could cause you know that person's perceived performance in their last job to not be relevant at all to what they could do at your company. So how do you how do you weight that? A couple of things. One is constructing a loop of five people in your company to do collect their own data independently in this targeted way across the capabilities, competencies, leadership principles that matter for the role for your company and for your company is the essence of what you're going to use. You also, if you have prior work experience, like I've hired another individual, Jeff Hull, I hired uh, three times, twice at Amazon and once at Bulletproof. He's back at Amazon now after uh, the Bulletproof experience. But so you, when you have experience working with somebody, but still he went through, he was sweating, right? You know, the interviews at Bulletproof, it wasn't like, oh, he had a pass because he had worked for me before. He still had to nail those interviews and be like, oh, is he right for this team, for this company, for this role? And so the other thing is what, what you said, Ben, is really important, which is, what's the fit for this particular opportunity position? And just because they were a great fit at, at that other company for that particular thing doesn't mean they're going to be a great fit. It could, but you want to really, that's what, well, that's what you need to suss out is, well, you know, what are those key capabilities and cultural aspects that make or don't make a good uh, fit for that candidate in this, this role or position? And the more someone is a, you know, quote unquote, 
um, athlete or, or general athlete and has demonstrated flexibility and adaptability, you know, looking for those kinds of signals, those evidence points where they've demonstrated these things that matter uh, to you, that's what you really want to look for, whether it's in a reference and the same thing when you're having a reference to the, hey, is this, you know, great guy or gal? No, it's what specifically did they do? And you're also looking for contra evidence that says, well, you know, what are the, what are the challenges or in development and growth areas? Because we all have strengths and opportunities. And again, it's important that the opportunities are, uh, that the strengths match what you need and the opportunities aren't going to be barriers in that particular, uh, in particular position or, or company. But there's no panacea. And just to be clear, I've made a lot of mistakes. There's, I'm not 100%. I still, I've made uh, bad hires uh, and I've been part of making bad hires, both direct reports to me as well as extended on teams. There's no 100% on this. If you're if you're right a majority of the time, and getting anywhere close to 80% of the time, then you're you're phenomenal. It always strikes me in hiring how similar the process is to investing. Really, any type of investing. People obviously t- do talk about this, but I don't think enough. Like it's the type of decision and the type of impact that it can have and your your ability like you nobody is ever going to be right 100% of the time Warren Buffett isn't right 100% of the time I'm sure you know Jeff Bezos in hiring isn't right 100% of the time I, I keep going back to I really love what you said earlier about the the basketball court analogy I think that makes so much sense for both of these yeah no I appreciate that which it just reminds me another I have some rules of thumb that I use and one of those rules of thumb is when in doubt, throw them out. I got that. As I was getting trained as an as appropriate at Microsoft, Michael Dwan uh, is a leader there who wasn't as appropriate and put, put me through. It's not just you get trained, but you also do an apprenticeship. This is similar for a bar raiser uh, at Amazon. You're, you're doing shadowing and apprenticing really through a process for a while until you, and then are getting shadowed by someone else. And they're like, okay, you're at the bar where now you can fly on your own and do this. And we trust you as a company to go do this thing. And basically, be a a barrier to coming in if it's not you know you're holding the line basically for the company for both the calibration and the and the potential long term hire for that for that company. So when in doubt, throw them out. So that means don't be an on the there's no on the fence, which even gets to everybody on a loop should say hire or no hire based on the competencies and values or leadership principles that I'm hiring on. In other words, I don't know what you, you could say you're a hire based on what you interviewed for, but I'm a no hire based on what I interviewed for. And then also you can always get, and that's job one for every interview on the loop is to go after and assess what the key questions, what they're, what they're looking for. And then they can also, if they have time, get other data, if you will, or say, I also had, you know, my, my gut was off or my spice sense, or I had this question, or I don't understand why. And you can add that as extra flavor, but you're making a decision based on what you uh, assessed based on your questions going after your uh, signed competencies and values. So hire or no hire, there's no, maybe a hire, maybe, maybe not a hire. And then remember that you're assessing, you're assessing FIB, you're also creating a candidate experience, they're assessing. And so your job one, again, is to get that data, because otherwise there's not, there's no match, but they're also collecting data and you want to give them information uh, about the, the opportunity in the company. Do you ever go into sell mode in an interview? Absolutely. And the, and the faster I get my data, the, and if I, if I think, yes, this is it, then the faster I can go and, 
and and sell. But even if I know in, in my interview or think that they're not a fit for that role, I'll be looking for, are they a fit somewhere else? If I think they're not a fit for the role, they're not a fit for somewhere else in the company, I'll do that and assess for that. If they're not, if I think they're not a fit for the for the role or the company, I'll still want it to be a good candidate experience because they are out in the world, they're a customer, they could be a customer, they could be a future. Uh, you, you know, again, I want that to be a good experience regardless. I'm not saying I always do a good job of that uh, or that I can't be intimidating during interviews. I've heard that feedback too. But I work to be connected, authentic, and also create uh, a good candidate experience where I can. Yeah, this is something that Mike brought up to me. He was saying it's such a fallacy that people think that when they think about employer brand, that it's created by the people that they hired. It's like, I think his example was we hired a thousand people or something at, at Aquaniv, but like we interviewed another 50,000 that we didn't hire. Our brand is actually the sum of what they think of us, not what the small number of people who work at our company think of us in terms of talking about our company out in the world. And I think it's a it's an oft overlooked thing, especially in startup land where people are just obsessed with efficiency and making the hire and moving on and you know building and selling. And a lot of people, I think, miss the the fact that all those rejections that you're making out there, every one of those people has an anecdote of the way that they interacted with your company. Yes. And this also gets to the timeliness of, of you know, scheduling the interview, communication back and forth, before, after, um, collecting information. How was the experience? That's the other you don't know. So it's certainly asking, getting, getting a survey back, getting feedback back on what it was and then being able to use that to improve the process. And that's an important part as well of it. One of the things we didn't talk about specifically is the kind of interview questions and behavioral, the kinds of questions and the, the way that Amazon and Microsoft and that I've been trained even before that to do interviews is this behavioral questioning or behavioral interviewing, which says, what is the past? It, it's basically what you're doing is getting an example of past experience or behavior where they demonstrated this skill or knowledge or capability or, again, critical thinking or judgment, and you're asking a question that will demonstrate where they're actually dem- they're showing or they're telling you about when they demonstrated this capability or, or, or skill set before. And so that a lot of those questions are, they start with, tell me about a time when, you know, blank, blank, blank. It's not yes or no. And it's, and, and typically, again, in an interview, if you're doing it, you only have a chance to ask one or two or maybe three questions, and then you're probing within that question a lot to really get to specifics. That's the kind or type of interview method, if you will. That have you liked to, or have you learned to handle those, the, the starting out jumping off point of that question? Like, uh, you know, you walk in and tell me about a time when you, I don't know, made a hard decision, whatever. Actually, no, uh, I want to hear Anna's, what, what, what's your favorite sort of yeah, question? Yeah. <laughs> I have a portfolio of questions. I have hundreds of questions that I, in my, um, well, one of the things, again, that the uh, benefit of uh, having been around the block a few times is I, I do have this data bank of questions and answers where I've asked and I I have my data set of like what kinds of answers and, and what I think are, you know, good answers and what are are, are not. It's just starting out with how I start out interviews. I do say, you know, hey, I'm going to who I am, my role, and I'm really happy to meet you. We're here to talk about XYZ opportunity. You know, thanks for making time to, to come in today or to talk with us today. 
So I let them know like who I am, you know, what we're doing, setting it up. And, and that starts or sort of that starts. And I say, and I'm going to take, I usually I'm typing. I say, I'm going to take notes and hopefully that's not disruptive. I'll try to make eye contact. I'm usually pretty good at it, but, and you can also take notes if you want. And so I try to set up the interview like that and setting that up. I think a nice thing to, to, to work to do. And also I'll make time at the end to answer your questions, but I'll start out with some questions so that they know what to expect. And then um, I usually start out with a couple of what I call softball questions that also give me uh, some information about if they, how they've prepared, how interested they are. And so, and again, I've asked these questions for decades now at all companies and all different levels, whether they're college grads or senior executives. And those questions are, one, what percent fit on a scale of zero to 100? What percent fit are you for this opportunity and why? What are the three to five key factors that are why you say you're X percent fit? From that question, you know, some will say 80%, 75%, 90%, 100%. And you know, the, what it tells you, again, if someone, first of all, I say opportunity. I don't say role. I don't say job. And when I say opportunity, I mean opportunity in the broadest sense, because that's including the specific role. It's talking about that business, that sector, that because it could be right a division of Microsoft or it could be a startup company. It could be, but it's, all, it's talking about the role and the company and the people. It's everything. And so what they say and how they match. So what do they know about the role? What, how, they, how they reflected that role to their own experience and how have they reflected the company and the business and the product service, whatever it is, all of that. And how enthusiastic are they? That'll show up as well. And how much, how prepared are they? will show up in that. And the next question I ask is, on a scale of one to 10, what level of interest do you have in the opportunity and why? What are the three to five key factors in your answer? And I say, and 10 is you'd pay me money to have this job. And one is I couldn't pay enough money. And also, do people answer the question? Will they give me a number in both those examples? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is another piece of, of feedback that you get that. Have you gotten answers from one to 10? Yes, I have. <laughs> but most, uh, m- mostly on the uh, five to 10. <laughs> have you ever ha- hired anybody who gave you a less than five number? The number is the least important. Yeah. <laughs> Although if someone gives you a 10 or a, a 100, I usually coach them to give me something else, which I have received both those answers before more than once. But it's really the thinking that goes, that's the most important thing, right? Not the actual, not the actual answer. And I'd imagine that guides you to a place where, you know, they're talking about why they're interested in the roles. Then you have context of their perception of the company, their perception of the opportunity, their perception. Like, I would assume your next set of questions, no matter what value you're you're interviewing for, sort of get shaped from there. Uh, actually, no. The questions, I have my questions that I'm diving Specifically, now, if if I will collect information and I'll use it and I might ask additional questions, but I have a job to do. So if I'm interviewed and I'm I'm interviewing for does someone have good judgment or their critical thinking or their management leadership, then I have a set of questions that I have or a question or two that I'm going to ask that I have to ask to get that information in, in my mind. Now, again, I could use another one. I could segue. It's true. I could segue potentially using those, but then mostly I'll say, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to move on to, uh, you know, thanks for that. Or 
sometimes they'll share, you know, great stuff that, about their why their prior experience is a super great match for the stroll. I'm like, gosh, that's great, or that was a super accomplishment. I also try to really let the let the candidate know that I'm listening in in an authentic way, which is like, you know, people share what they've done. And it's like it's impressive. You're like, oh god, that's great. That's awesome. You know, congratulations you for that. Thanks for sharing. And and keep going. So again, I'm not perfect at that, but I uh, pay attention. I try to do that as I'm going along. Yeah, let's let's jump into one of these questions where you have a job to do. It's a question that you know you've premeditated. You've said, okay, I'm mapping the fact that I'm interviewing for this characteristic to this question. Let's say that characteristic is has good judgment. What one or few questions do you ask to tease that out without being obvious and direct and asking the person? Tell me about a time where you exhibited good judgment. So a couple of things. One is I actually, it doesn't matter if the person knows that I am actually, you know, assessing their yeah, judgment. It's not like a I mean, trick, you know, right? I'm not trying to trick. Yeah, that's the other thing. I'm not actually trying to trick or be devious or deceptive. That's not my intent during all this. All at the same time, I also don't want to be like, oh, yeah, what, what level of judgment do you have? You know, that I think that's what you're getting because that makes people uncomfortable. It's not actually the best way, you know, to get at it. So again, you could ask, those are battery questions, but one of my favorite questions for assessing judgment is tell me about a decision that you made in the last year or two a significant decision one of the biggest decisions i say you know we've made small decisions every day business around different things but i want you to give me a significant decision a business decision that you made in the last year or two that you would change if you could why do you pick that decision tell me specifically about the decision what you would change and what you would do differently and then what are you looking for in answers to that? Well, you're looking for, again, when you're assessing a question, there's the STAR method is sort of this typical behavioral interviewing uh, method for, you know, what's the situation that they're they're starting with describing the situation. And then they're telling you what actions or what they actually did, right? And then how they actually did it and, and sort of the why behind, you know, what they did how they did what they did and what kind of results they got after they took those actions. So the situation or task, the actual action and sort of why behind the action and the actual results that they got in a, in a very sort of as, as qualitative or quantitative kind of results that they actually got. What you're looking for in that, you know, for me, I'm looking in the judgment. How So first of all, what, what scale and scope of the decision? So one of the things about assessing level is for whatever this an entry level position or it's a senior level executive is scope and scale, right? So scope and scale and capability and impact. So, and what did they demonstrate it? And so when you ask for one of the most significant decisions, if they pick a very small scope kind of decision, then you're like, okay, well, that was not significant decision. So you're like, well, that's not in good judgment that you pick that decision, right? Or that's the biggest scope and scale you've ever had, Right. So then you pick that decision. Yeah. Right. One of two things is wrong. Either you don't have experience making big decisions or you do and you just exhibited bad judgment by not telling me about it. And again, you're not trying to trick someone. You're really trying to set them up, which is why I say and and if they still and sometimes people I'll give them do overs if they, they pick something. I'm like, well, that, you know, it's not really what I'm looking for. Can you is there something else? Or so, again, I'm not trying to I, I, I want the candidate if they're there in the process at this point. No. I'm trying to help them be successful. I'm not trying to trick them. I actually want them to be a fit, right? But I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to get the information that helps me know that or not to the best you know, of my ability. And so 
that's what I'm doing through that process. And I'll say, oh, that's not, you know, is there another one? Or, or I'll give them an example. I'll say, when I was, you know, building a, a business at you know, search business at Microsoft, or when I decided whatever at this other, whatever is appropriate, I will pick something out of mine to even help them give an example of this is what I'm looking for if they're struggling. So my point is you're looking for what the, to demonstrate the capability, what level of capability is it? Is it, does it fit for the role that you're assessing, looking for? Another one that I, it's like a teamwork, a collaboration or earn trust in Amazon uh, leadership principles is, I call it the, and Microsoft has one, a similar one. It's again, it's for a teamwork, but it's an adverse, I call it adverse situation question, which is, tell me about a time when you had a problem, a disagreement with a peer and a big disagreement, not like we have small disagreements all the time, but a big disagreement, a work, a work disagreement. And tell me about one of your biggest ones that you've ever had in your whole career. Tell me about what it was, what happened, what did you do, what did they do, and what happened. And then I have them walk me through specifically in that. And again, you'll see, well, how did they work through that? What was their point of view? Did they understand the other party's point of view? Were they able to articulate it or not? And again, how did it resolve? What did they learn? What would they do differently, if anything? Again, you start to get to self-awareness, self-critical, vocally self-critical capability as well as, as their ability to team and understand and work with other points of view. Well, Anna, what didn't we ask you about the world of interviewing that would be helpful for folks to know? The only thing that comes to mind for me is we didn't really touch on the debrief. Like, how do you get all the data in a room and then make a decision? Oh, yeah. If there's a pre-brief, pre-guidance, the hiring manager owns the pre-brief. That's the other thing I think accountability for uh, you know, hiring that uh, so maybe that's something, again, we didn't talk about. So so this whole, the work and effort they go into preparing for, first of all, the role, the interview loop the, the resume, you know, certainly the process up front and sourcing and, and, and the ownership of the process, you know, recruiting does not own hiring or they are part of it. The, the hiring manager, hiring managers and the team that that hiring manager picks to partner on that process, but the hiring manager owns the process. The hiring manager is the one who's responsible and accountable and needs to be the quarterback also of the process. It's another role of the, as appropriate at Microsoft or Barbies are at Amazon is to make sure that hiring managers are doing what they're supposed to be doing and give that feedback directly to hiring managers if they're not owning it and being the quarterback uh, for the process and running a process that is, you know, effective as well as efficient. And so that does have to do with pre-brief. So there's that you're going to send out and assign roles. You're going to prepare the loop uh, ahead of time. And when there's a new role, having a conversation or a pre-brief about the role, what you're looking for, and everyone's part on the loop is important. And uh, so again, an email and then an actual meeting. It could be a short meeting, like a 30-minute meeting again to do that. And then the debrief after where you, everyone has to get their feedback in within 24 hours. Again, you want to be efficient. And then you schedule a debrief with everybody to talk and about. Hiring, both, both pre-brief and debrief, hiring manager should be leading yes. both of those. Yes, yes, yes. And when you walk into the room for the debrief, everyone's weighed in with their information. The Presumably the hiring manager has looked at everyone's feedback, but has anyone else seen it? 
Yes. After you have written your feedback, after someone has submitted their feedback, then everybody should be able to read whatever feedback's in. And it's actually another great uh, process point that you really do want everybody, if they can, to read the feedback before they get in the room for the debrief. So then again, it goes much more efficiently. If they can't, they can do it, you know, real time. But and that's where they're going to share their point of view on their on their uh, what they were interviewing for their assignment. And I think there's there's even another point in here that uh, you're probably assuming from being in high performing recruiting organizations for a while, but I can tell you it's definitely not the case for a lot of folks, which is that everybody who is on the loop writes down their feedback after the loop, right? Yes. And it, and and this is a practice. It's it's one of those things where, yeah, it's it's extra work. Like, you know, it's and it's also one of the things as I, you know, I loved it whether I was, you know, as a senior leader in any organization, but people are like, oh, I can't wait to have you. Like, you don't do anything. You just think. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm doing stuff, doing stuff all the time. Yes, I, I think some of the time. But there are no jobs that are just thinking jobs. There are a lot of, you know, all jobs have doing and thinking in them. So that's, that's one of my favorite two by twos to do, with especially new college grads. That's a little digression, but it gets to this point of, yeah, it's a lot of work doing, selecting people. And guess what? It's the most important thing. It, I actually think it's one of the most important things uh, a business does. And you, you started out the podcast that way, guys. And I really, I do like who you bring on the bus and what seat on the bus as part of your team. That's, that's it. And that's where it's usually the biggest expense companies have. I mean, all of this, right? The people. So it's super important and it's worth putting in the right effort up front to get the right people on the bus and the right seat on the bus. And yes, writing down the feedback, submitting, it doesn't need to be a narrative, a novel. It, it, again, it can be shorthand, but it needs to be uh, understood, which is why at, at, at the high performing interviewing teams that do this uh, at big and small companies, just write the feedback and then edit it right away and send it in when they're, when they're done with the interview. If it's not clear and you need to like, or you're a busy day, but it's, you know, end of the day, you're going from meeting to meeting or interview to, to meeting to say, yeah, I'm going to do it at night or the next morning and let it settle a little bit to say, yeah, here's my hire or no hire based on what I, you know, what I heard. Well, that's a good place uh, as any to leave it. Well, Anna, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is great. All right. Thanks guys. Super fun. Take care. Likewise. Stay safe.